Open your Bibles to Ezra chapter 6. Ezra chapter 6, thank you. As we approach this passage, just to remind you of where we are in the, in the story, um, the people of God started rebuilding in chapter 5 at the urging of the prophets, at the urging of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. They have uh, laid out the the temple foundations, and now they've started building the walls, and they're using huge stones, and and they're using uh, big pillars, big timbers, and they scare the local inhabitants, and the local inhabitants come, and they blow their horns, and they blow their trumpets, and they try to stop the work. And God gave us a picture of this in Zechariah with the horns and the trump and the uh, and the craftsmen. And we see that he has overcome the blowing of the horns and the proclamation that the building must stop. So that's where we are in chapter 5. They've sent the letter to Darius. The complainers, the adversaries, the opponents have sent the letter to Darius with all these passive-aggressive comments and all these statements trying to get Darius to end the building and the... Jewish leaders have responded in wisdom, not giving a single name that they were asked for, but just holding fast to what is legally their right and doing what they have been told to do. So that's where we are here in chapter 6. Darius here is responding in chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 all the way through 15. Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored, and in Ekbatana, the capital, that is, in the province of Medea, a scroll was found on which this was written. A record in the first year of of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, its breadth shall be 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones, one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury, and also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon to be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now, therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozani, and all your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, Keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for the elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of the house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river and whatever is needed bulls rams or sheep or burnt offerings 
to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if any one alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it. His house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell over there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Then, according to the words sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai and the prophet Zechariah, the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And may God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, when we come to this passage in Ezra, there's some really incredible things that jump out at you. And I hope that Darius's threat to Tatanai is not the only thing that jumped out in your brain, though it should have. Uh, the being impaled on a beam sounds very terrifying. So it should have jumped out. You should have been like, whoa, that's intense, right? And it is. So... We want to talk just briefly. Remember, the horns blow and the craftsmen win. This is from Zechariah. We've got that image of the horns blowing in Zechariah chapter 2. And they come to threaten and intimidate the people of God. But God sends craftsmen, four craftsmen, who overcome the four horns. Right? That's kind of what's going on in this thing. The second thing from last week, we remember the word of God empowers the people of God to do the work of God. The horns blow, and then the people have Haggai and Zechariah stand up and proclaim the word of God. Remember, Haggai is very straightforward. Do the work. God puts holes in your pockets when you don't, and he honors you when you do. It's very simple. He will bring blessing when you obey. He will bring trouble when you don't obey. So this is pretty straightforward Haggai. And then you've got Zechariah who's got all kinds of word pictures and and things that are talking about the second coming and things that are talking about the first coming of Jesus. And he's got all these wild pictures of of things and the priest and the priest who becomes a king and and the, the temple needing a king in it and all these various things that are happening. And the word of God empowers the people of God to do the work of God in chapter five. And then remember, there was a 15 year pause in chapter four where the people had stopped building for 15 years. So if you do the math, you've got 15-year pause. They build the foundation. They come back after 70 years of exile. They come back. They build the foundation. And there starts to be some accusers and some, uh, some opponents to the gospel. And when that happens, the people of God pause for a 15-year period. And they get comfortable. They get apathetic. 
And remember what we learned, that apathy is addressed by the Word of God. So apathy and fear are addressed by the Word of God. And the building comes back after 15 years, they start building again. And that's what we see here in chapter uh, in chapter 5 and 6. They start rebuilding, the complaint is made, and they finish. Now, I want to just pause for a moment. Uh, the Word of God teaches us in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work or cultivate and keep it. He had a job when he was put in the garden. Adam had a job when he was put in the garden. Eve was put with him to complete the work. That job, that commission was given to spread the garden out, to spread the image of God out in Genesis 1, 26, to spread the image of God across the earth. That commission was given to mankind before the fall. And that mission, that commission is never, he's never told to stop. He's, all throughout the Bible, we're told to continue this. This blessing of the earth with the seed of the offspring of Abraham. The blessing of God on the earth. We are to, to give the gospel to everyone around us. The truth that Jesus Christ saves us from sin and gives us new life in Him. And that we can live eternally. That we can have salvation. That is the commission from the beginning to cultivate the earth and cultivate the garden to spread the image of God across the whole earth. And as we grow and learn and walk through the Bible, we learn more and more who Jesus is and we learn more and more who we are to be. So we are to be cultivating the earth, to making the earth look more like heaven. That's part of who we are, part of what we are. That's part of our mission as humans. More than that, as the people of God, it is a mission for us, a commission for us. Before sin entered the world, God had a mission for you to do. Before sin entered the world, God had a mission for you to do. And that mission did not stop, but merely got enhanced. It just got more valuable. So the mission for you to do was in the beginning to spread the image of God across the face of the earth, to spread out the garden, to cultivate and to make this world more like paradise. That's your mission. That's your commission from the beginning. That's what you were given to do. So when we read passages about Israel rebuilding the temple, when we read passages about the church in the New Testament spreading the gospel into places where it's never been. When we when we read these things, we need to understand that part of what's going on is the fulfillment of this mission and the calling of this mission, which we share, which we share that by the word of God, the nations of the world would be blessed. We receive the word of God. He lives in our hearts. We there in turn bless the world around us with that word. With the word of God. Indeed, the word of God empowers the people of God to do the work of God. So, Darius comes to 
our attention in chapter 6, verse 1. Then Darius the king made a decree, and a search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored, and in Ekbatana, the capital that is in the province of Medea, a scroll was found on which this is written. And then it records Cyrus's decree. So first, he makes a search, and he finds a search, and he finds the decree that, that Cyrus had made. Second, he answers Tatanai, right? Look at verse 6. Jump down to verse 6. And he answers Tatanai here in 6 through 12. And he says, uh, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, uh, and Shather, Bozanai, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Now, this is a legal statement. I know it sounds harsh and kind of like a jab at him. But it's not. It's a legal statement. He's telling him, stay away from this. Don't address this. This is not your purview. You do not have authority here. That's what this this term, keep away, in context of the Aramaic that this is written in, in the context that this is written, he is saying this is a legal statement. Tatanai, you do not have the authority to stop this. Keep away from this. This is not your purview. This is not where you're supposed to be discussing things. So then you move down and you see more of his address. He says, keep away. And he says, let the work on the house of God alone. Again, that's more legal language. Let the governor of the Jews and elders and the the elders of the Jews rebuild the house of God on this site. And then he says, moreover, I make a decree. He makes an additional decree beyond just this is not your purview, beyond this is not your legal position. He says, one step further, Tatanai. Moreover, I make a decree regarding that you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of the house of God. So here's your responsibility. You get to stay away. You don't have purview here. You can't make judgment calls here. Here's what I want you to do, Tatanai. And he says, the cost is to be paid and the men in full without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province beyond the river. Your tax dollars, Tatanai, are going to go to the Jews. That's what he tells them. Your tax dollars are going to be used to build the wall. That's what he tells them. The Jews are going to build the temple and Mexico is going to pay for it. You understand? That's what he says. This is the province beyond the river. This is this is the ones beyond the river, so they're slightly beyond Israel. He looks at them and he says, Israel's going to build a temple and you're going to pay for it. And Tatanai, you can imagine, must be very frustrated. But he's given this instruction. One, you don't have any legal right here. Two, I'm taking your tax money and I'm going to pay for this wall with your tax money. And you're going to give it to them. You're going to give it to them. You're going to hand it to them. So he says, leave them alone. He says, we're going to use tax money to to pay for them. Now, a side note. It is always, it is not always wrong to take government funds for religious work. Just a side note. It is not always wrong to take government funds for religious work. Legally, sometimes churches and organizations and nonprofits 
get funds from the government. And I want you to understand, it is not always wrong to do that. We could cite Abraham saying to the king of Sodom, no, I will not take anything from you, only what I have earned. I will not take anything from you. I will not take anything from this governing official, only what I have earned. And we could take that and we could apply it across the board and say, see, Abraham didn't take anything from the governing officials, therefore neither should we. And I just want you to understand that it is not always wrong. It is also not always right. It is not always wrong and it is not always right. There is not a clear cut you don't take money from or you take money from in Scripture. There's not. There is case by case basis. And I love that about the Word of God. The Word of God recognizes that your life is complicated. That your interactions are unique. And they are individual. And that some people have thresholds that other people do not. And some people, some organizations have things that other people do not. And some people need to be a certain way and others do not. You have examples in in Timothy of Timothy needing to go ahead and follow the law at points and be circumcised. And Titus is told, you don't need to worry about that. Because of where they are. There are circumstantial differences that must be taken into account when you read passages of Scripture, when you encounter the government as a Christian on the earth today, there are times when you need to ask the Lord, Lord, what am I to do? And be convicted and convinced by the Word of God, yes or no. And sometimes it's going to be yes, and sometimes it's going to be no. But it will always be led by the Spirit through the Word of God. Be fully convinced in your own mind. And yet, here we have an example of the people of God taking funds from the government. And I just want to stop and say, it is not always wrong to take funds from government authorities. Nor is it always right. This must be a question that you ask all the time. We have many fellow churches that determined that they needed funds in the last three years that the government was willing to give because of employment, COVID stuff. And personally, we were convicted. No, we didn't need them. We don't want them. We don't want their hand on them. We don't want the government's hand in anything we do. In fact, we're perfectly happy that the government doesn't know we exist. That's We're happy with that. Yet there were brothers and sisters who felt convicted the other way that they could take this because this is tax dollars at work and they can justify it. Listen, we don't snub our nose at them because we had a different conviction. We encourage them and pray for them that they would have wisdom in what they do. And we say, that's wonderful. I'm glad the Lord led you in that direction. I hope he blesses your ministry. That's why we pray for them all the time. Even when we disagree, we pray for them. And we pray that the Lord would give them wisdom and give us wisdom as well. So they, he says here in verse 8, give from the royal revenue. And then in verse 9, whatever is needed, bulls, rams, sheep, and burnt offerings to God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail. So he knows, I want you to see this, Darius has some understanding of what the sacrifice is 
sacrificial system takes. When he writes to Tatanai, he says, give them from the tax revenue. Oh yeah, not just the tax revenue. Give them the things they need for their religious celebration day by day and don't fail at it. Give them all of them. Give them everything they need. Give them all that they need. In verse 10, he says why his motivation, we'll get to that in a minute, but his motivation that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of their king, of the king and his sons. So, Darius recognizes that blessing this people, this God, blessing them is going to come back on him in a positive measure. That they would pray to their God for me and my sons. So he ties, get this, he ties his instructions to the governor, Tatanai, saying, this is for my benefit, Tatanai. You are doing this because I benefit from it. So can you imagine? I just want you to imagine Tats and I getting frustrated with the building at some point and starting to see people amassing and starting to get nervous because it means, you know, these people are going to grow and they're going to be bigger and, and they might even build a wall at some point. And, and if they build a wall, they could have a king. And if they have a king, they can have an army. And, oh, no, I'm the governor of this area. I need to be able to control these people so that I can get what I want from them, so that I can continue to live in lavish luxury while they work away and toil at their own work. What am, what am I going to do to exact excess tax to allow myself the freedom to live in luxury? And he's starting to get nervous, and I want you to hear what might go through his head. The, the king of his area, who's in charge of him, who he has to pay taxes to, says, if you bother these people, if you hurt these people... You're crossing me. You're crossing me. You're going to upset me. Not, you're going to upset this rabble of Jewish people. You're going to upset me. Not, you're going to upset this insignificantly, seemingly insignificant kingdom of people. You're going to upset the king who's over you, Tatanai. So the instruction is given that he should leave them alone, that he should use tax money for the work. And then he establishes this punishment in verse 11. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters the edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house. He shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. That's intense. That's really intense, that, that he would be impaled on his house. It's like... The king looks at Tatanai and goes, if you don't obey, I'm murdering everyone. I'm going to kill everyone that does it. And not only did you not obey, but what was common in that time period was slight variations in the instructions that were given to the benefit of the governors of that area. So they would kind of monkey with legal jargon. They'd say, well, the king said this, and they'd phrase it in such a way that it would be to their benefit. They would say something in a way that it would be to their benefit. And so this was common among Persian governors to do this. So the king, seeing this, seeing that this could happen, goes, wait a second. Tatanai, if you do this, if you alter my edict at all, I'm going to put you on a post in front of your house and then demolish your house. And it's going to be a place of waste and refuge. And that's it. So there's a threat that follows there. There's a threat that follows there for him. And then in verse 12, he follows that threat with, oh yeah, the God of this area can take care of you too. 
That's what 12 essentially says to Tatanite. Now, so what makes a king, a pagan king like Darius, do this? What makes him, what makes for such a thing to come from this pagan king? So we see what Darius did. Now we see what makes, we want to ask the question, what makes this kind of decree and edict come from a pagan king? Darius is not a, not a believer. Uh, we know this from history, that he would say things in appeal, just like Cyrus, he would say things that were kind of in agreement to these various things. He was a syncretist. He ad- just added the next religion to what he did. Now, there may have been some conviction at some point. God may have done something for him privately in his own personal life, and he may have become a believer at some point. Same with Cyrus. Yet, we don't see that in history, and we don't see that in any documents. What we see instead is a, a clever king who knows how to handle himself politically. Darius, remember, we called the great compromiser. He was able to compromise with all these other kingdoms, and that's part of the reason his kingdom flourished. Part of the reason his king kingdom flourished was he was able to compromise. Now, God works, so there's a couple of principles. The first one is God works over and through the kings. The kings of the earth are under God's sovereign control. And let's take some heart in that right now as we look at our political landscape across the world and recognize that I don't think there's one good ruler that I would point to in my brain and go, that one's doing a great job. In our world, on the world stage, we have dictators, tyrants, warmongers, and fools. That's what we've got right now. That's where we are. The, The best nation in the world, of course I'm biased, the best nation in the world, our nation, has a bunch of people who can't agree on a budget. Who can't work out a budget. I worked in church ministry for nine years at a church where we had to come together with a budget that disagreed, and everybody in the church ministry had their own budget. Everybody had their own ministry. Everybody had their own budget. We had to work together to figure out how we were going to make things happen in a budget situation, and you had meeting after meeting after meeting. There were at least five meetings for every budget year, one with the staff, one with all the ministry heads, one with all the ministry heads, one with all the ministry heads, and then you had the final budget meeting with the whole church. And this, I mean, I'm, it's funny, but it's true. You had a bunch of meetings over and over with the ministry heads, not because of attendance. Everybody came, but everybody argued. And we would see this come out at the end, and we could make a budget. And we could make a budget. If you have a bunch of people who are super passionate about puppet ministry and they need their budget, they are going to come to the meeting, and they're going to make their budget, and they're going to present it, and you're going to argue over it, and it's going to be awful. Budget meetings are horrible. No one likes them. And yet, we live in a country right now, one of the greatest countries on the earth, if not the greatest country on the earth, and we are in the middle of a political firestorm because they can't agree on a budget because they want to add stuff to it all the time. And people who don't want to add stuff want to subtract things to it all the time. And they can't talk it out and agree, listen, God rules over these kings. God rules and works over and through these kings. 
One, God turns the hearts of kings. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. You should remember this, memorize it. The king's heart is as a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wills. God rules the heart of the king. So God works over and through his kings, and he does that by ruling over the hearts of the king. He turns the hearts of the king. Second, God ordains and anoints kings. These people are in power by God's hand. Even if you don't like them, they're in power by God's hand. In Isaiah 45, it says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed Cyrus, whose right hand I grasped to subdue the nations before him, to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. Isaiah proclaims in Isaiah 45, 1, that Cyrus is God's anointed. He put him in position. He put him there. Cyrus, he put Cyrus there, pagan king. God's the one that put him there. God also makes the same claim of Assyria. God says, Assyria is my hammer, and I'm going to use them how I want to. God puts, anoints kings. God makes kings. Think about Saul in 1 Samuel. Saul, who's a lousy king, who's hiding among the bags. And God comes and says, you're going to be king. And Saul goes, I guess. And they make him king. And Samuel says, you're going to be a wicked, awful king. Here's your crown. It's a really weird passage. If you ever want to read it, it's fun. First Samuel. Saul becomes anointed king and he's an awful king. But he's the kingdom. He's the king that God put there. Then David becomes king and David's a good king and an awful one at the same time. And you've got God putting him there. And David at one point stands in front of Saul. Remember, David has been anointed king at this point. And he sneaks up on Saul and cuts off the hem of his robe and goes away. And everybody wonders why he didn't kill Saul. And Saul says, why didn't you kill me? And David says, I will not stretch out my hand against God's anointed. David recognized that God put Saul in power. That God put Saul in, in power. So this is God anoints and ordains kings. Third, God uses pagan kings as his tools. Isaiah chapter 10 is a chapter about God using Assyria as his tool. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. So God says, I wield Assyria. Assyria considered the Nazis of the BC era, by the way. They were horrible. They would flay people alive and put them on poles. This was a horrible, wicked, evil empire that demolished their enemies. And they were disgusting and wicked people. And they came and conquered the northern kingdom by, according to God, by his hands. He used them as his rod of wrath. God uses pagan kings like tools And then fourth, God deposes and raises kings and nations. We don't have time to read the whole book of Habakkuk and the whole chapter of Isaiah 10, but go read those. And you'll see Habakkuk says, Lord, why does injustice reign? And the Lord says, don't worry, Habakkuk. I'm going to send Assyria to take out the leaders in your your kingdom who are not repentant, who who are oppressing the weak. Who are unjust, who are wicked. I'm gonna I'm gonna send Assyria to take them and Habakkuk goes, they're worse than us. And he goes, Don't worry, I've got somebody worse than them lined up behind them to take them out. And Habakkuk goes, I guess I'll wait and watch from the wall and see what you do. 
but I will wait on the Lord and he puts my feet on high places. And it's this really incredibly difficult book to read through and enjoy because Habakkuk is pleading with the Lord, can you come? Can you come and rescue us? Can you bring justice? And he goes, I'm going to bring justice. I'm going to murder all the bad guys in Jerusalem. And Habakkuk goes, with the Assyrians? He goes, yes. And then he says, but they're evil. And God says, don't worry. I'm bringing the Babylonians behind them. And Habakkuk goes, they're worse. Habakkuk, don't worry. I got one after them. Don't worry. And then you'll come back later. But don't worry. I'm going to preserve my remnant. And the comfort that the Lord issues to Habakkuk is I protect the believer's who are mine. I protect those who believe and trust in me. The remnant will be kept. The remnant will be held. The remnant of Israel will be protected, Habakkuk. And Habakkuk goes, okay, I'll wait for you to do that. God uses the favor of the world to bless his people. God also uses the ire of the world to purify his people. We see this all through the Old Testament, and we see it in the New Testament. God uses the favor of the world to bless his people, and he uses the ire of the world to purify his people. Either way, God's people are always on a victorious trend upward. Either way, God's people are always on a victorious trend upward. We are either being purified, or we are getting blessing. We are always advancing the kingdom of God. It steadily moves forward in blessing. So first, we have God works over and through the kings. Second, we have in Darius's case, and in I would argue in every case, God has silent servants doing unsung work behind the scenes. He has silent servants doing unsung work behind the scenes. You see, in the Bible, there's this teenage kid that gets taken from... Israel and driven into exile when Nebuchadnezzar comes. He and three of his friends get taken and they get put in the university system and they get educated and they become leaders in Babylon. They rise to power, the four of them, and one of them in particular, rises to power and he becomes a second uh, advisor to the king. He becomes a governor, a Persian governor, and he's a Jew. And his name is Daniel. And we see him rise through the book of Daniel. We see him come into the exile and he becomes a leader. Did you notice in Ezra and Nehemiah, Daniel is not mentioned. He's not discussed. He's not mentioned in these passages. He's not. There's nothing said about Daniel interceding on behalf of the people. But in Daniel chapter 9, we have this incredible picture of Daniel praying. And the angel of the Lord comes to Daniel and says, I was battling the prince of Persia. And until your prayers came, I was not victorious. But your prayers gave us victory. That was in the first year of Darius, the king. The second year of Darius, the king, this happens. So we see there's been this unsung servant working. See, And we know that because... Darius sees that the kings are blessed, that bless Israel. Remember, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, which is repeated in Deuteronomy and Jeremiah, says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and pin you to all the families 
of the earth shall be blessed. And in you, sorry, that P shouldn't be there. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 12, 3. Part of the blessing of Abraham is I will bless those. That's one of those, uh, just for a side note, because they're so we're small enough to be able to do this. When you cut and paste from a from a site, they sometimes have these like little links you can click. And I try to delete them, but then, right? Okay, so in you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So in you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. At some level, Darius gets this. At some level, Darius sees this and knows if I bless this people, I will be blessed. If I bless these people, these people who serve this God, I will be blessed. And you know that because of what he said in chapter uh, 6, verse 10, when he says, leave them alone so that they can pray and offer sacrifices for me and my sons. I know that I'll be blessed by these people. That, that the people who bless Israel will be blessed in this. Uh, in this. So he knew that. He knew that that was the case. He knew that he blessed the people of God. So Darius has some understanding of theology. He gets it. He calls God the God of heaven. The God of heaven. That phrase is introduced to them by Daniel. It's not used in Persia until Daniel shows up. That phrase, the God, the God of heaven, is used by Daniel. Persia wasn't worried about the God of heaven. They had the God of storms. They had the God of wheat. They had the God of fertility. They had the God of land. They had the God of this area. They had the God of that area. They had the God beyond the rivers. They had the God of the sea. They had the God that was over different provinces. They had a, the God of media. They had a God of these various areas. But they did not grasp that there was some transcendent God beyond all that until the Hebrews show up. So who do you think it was that told them? Daniel and his testimony and his silent witness before the people that there was a God of heaven. So Darius says the God of heaven. He uses that terminology. That is Hebrew terminology that was taken to that culture. So Darius understands that God is not like the pagan gods. He's been shown that God is not like the pagan gods. He's the God of heaven who places his name in Jerusalem. Did you see that there? It's uh, down. He says, may the God, verse 12, may the God who has caused his name to dwell over, to dwell over there, overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this. God caused his name to dwell. Unlike the other gods who live in a place, this God puts his name on stuff. But he's in heaven. He's greater and more transcendent than the place where he is, but he puts his name on things here. And that's what Darius recognizes. This is the God of heaven who puts his name on this city, on this Temple, he says, may the God who put his name there overthrow anyone who tries otherwise. So he also understands the practical reality of what's happening here. He understands that God can destroy whoever he wants. Look at that verse 12 again. May the God who caused his name dwell over there overthrow any king or people who shall put their hand out to alter this. He knows he can overthrow anybody he wants. He can overthrow anything. So he's got some practical understanding. Now, I just want to encourage you, sometimes we as God's people forget this reality. 
And we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded that these other kings and leaders and government officials and all these uh, bosses and and neighbors and city officials and and employers, all of them, they are all subject to our God. No one is outside of his purview or his power. And he is in charge of all things. We need to be reminded that he can do what he wishes. Sometimes we need to be reminded that the reality is that God is in charge of everything. So Darius has some theology. He understands the practical reality. And he calls the Lord the God of heaven. He calls him that. He's the God of heaven. So from Darius's perspective, this is a God who transcends Darius's reality. He's also a God who transcends Darius's power and purview. Darius is the king over Persia. Darius knows that very well. He knows that he's the king over these things. He knows he can't touch anything in heaven. He walks outside at night like just like the rest of us and sees the stars he can't reach. Same with every ruler on this earth. At some level, they walk outside and they recognize they can't defeat that infinitely great and high God who rules over all of that. Darius recognizes that. So that's the king's interaction there. And then there's the silent servant, God's silent servant, who's been there when an exile happened. We have this boy taken who becomes a leader, Daniel. And Daniel is the one who introduces the king, the terminology of the God of heaven. As we've already said, he he introduces this terminology in Daniel chapter 2. It shows up with his conversation with Nebuchadnezzar. And then in chapter 7, he has a vision of the kingdom eternal. And it shows him him proclaiming that God is the God of heaven. Second thing Daniel does to influence this king is he displays the power of his God to depose kings through simple obedience. Daniel displays the power of God to depose kings by his simple obedience. In Daniel chapter 5, he shuts the lion's mouth. In Daniel chapter 6, he humiliates Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel chapter 4, and throughout the book of and throughout the visions of the book, he humiliates and overthrows kings over and over and over through the visions that are given to him. And we see Persia being taught that there is a God of heaven who is greater than all their gods, who is the God they must submit to. Indeed, this is the blessing of the seed of the woman who crushed the head of the snake. This is the blessing of the offspring of Abraham being shown to the world. They are given ample opportunity to trust in Yahweh, the God of heaven. Over and over and over In Daniel's testimony and in Daniel's work, there is this plea. Would you believe in this God? Would you trust in this God? It's the same thing we do now. We live a life holy, righteous, and upright, following hard after the Lord so that the world would see, the world would see the power of God displayed in his people. Third, Daniel gives the king or Daniel's students. Now, Just a pause. Academically, 
we need to understand that when I'm saying Daniel gives to the king, you need to understand that Daniel had students and he had kind of a school of prophets that were with him. He had a group of people that were with him. And we know this because of historical records in Babylon, also because of Jewish records where a a prophet who wrote like Daniel did often had scribes and, and students that were under him and people who served in positions under him. And he would teach those people and they would disseminate his word. And the Bible boils that down frequently to say, Daniel said, or Daniel did, or Daniel said these things, or Daniel's these things. Same with Isaiah. Isaiah had a school around him, a group of people around him that were writing things and keeping things for him. They were his words, don't get me wrong, but they were being kept by various groups of people. And so you didn't just have like Daniel by himself. You had Daniel and his school of students. And if his students spoke, they spoke for Daniel. They were speaking on behalf of Daniel. So it's not as if there's some 80-something-year-old man that's by himself in... Persia, who started when he was 17 and grew to 80-something, there's a man who started when he was 17, and as he grew, he amassed some more people around him. So by the time he's 80-something and he's declaring things and doing things, you might be hearing from Daniel through his students in a very practical manner, through the people who were around him in a very practical manner. Daniel might be talking to one group and I don't know, his buddy Bill might be over here to the side sharing what he has said with some other leaders. His administrator, Carl, might be over there with the documents, making sure the documents are recorded right and corrected and filed correctly. His secretaries might be pulling out documents that he has said and what he has said about the God of heaven. So this is kind of the construct that's going on here is there's a group of people that we refer to as Daniel when we're referring to the influence of Daniel in Persia. Because it's Daniel's influence very specifically. But I just want I, I just want you to get it in your head this that your influence is not just you having to do all the work. But rather in a very practical sense, you are teaching your children, you're teaching your friends, you're teaching your neighbors, you're engaging with other Christians and you are you are disseminating the word of God through the community of faith. You are doing this in this way. And Daniel's a good model for us in this. So Daniel gives the king an understanding of right theology. Daniel and his, his ilk give the king an understanding of right theology. And then finally, Daniel prays in Daniel 9, enabling the angels' victory. So what do we see here with Daniel? Daniel, the Lord uses his quiet faithfulness to literally change the world. The Lord uses Daniel's quiet faithfulness literally to change the world. The king sends a letter as a result of Daniel's intercession. The king knows this God of Israel as a result of Daniel's work. He is the silent, the silent unsung servant of the text who is interceding on behalf of Israel. Likewise, you, Sovereign Grace Fellowship, have frequently prayed for things that you have no connection to. And I believe in heaven we will sit across from somebody 
who will go, you were the one. You were, you were the one that God used. You prayed and asked and, and God did that. You were the one. Oh, God uses quiet faithfulness literally to change the world. Ezra makes no, in, no mention of Daniel, but his impact is obvious in this text. His impact is obvious. So we've got the king, we've got Daniel. Now, let's remember the story of Joshua and Zechariah 3. Remember, I've got this book back there by R.C. Sproul, which is fantastic, kid's book. I would urge adults to read this book too. It's uh, it's Zechariah 3. It's the prophecy. Joshua, the high priest, stands before the Lord. He's got dirty clothes on. The accuser comes and says, you can't stand before the Lord with those dirty clothes on. God says, you're right. The angel messenger of the Lord takes his clothes and then gives him the righteous covering of Jesus Christ. He stands before the Lord not clean and able to speak before the Lord. God's people are protected by the covering of the Messiah who comes before them, the priest king who stands before them and stands on their behalf. That's a brief overview of that book, of that chapter in chapter 3 of Zechariah. Please go read it. Don't leave my overview. That was an inadequate overview, but still good enough for our purposes now. So Joshua, I mean, Zechariah chapter 3, Joshua stands before the Lord and he stands clean. The accuser attempts to overthrow the people of God. And God covers his people. I want you to understand Jesus does this for you. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 14, it says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh were made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus, in him. So we see that God cancels the legal ramifications, the legal requirements of your punishment in Jesus Christ. Jesus overthrows the enemy. He overthrows the accuser and you are forgiven in Jesus Christ, able to stand before the Lord, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He took your sin, he who knew no sin became sin, that you might become the righteousness of God. He took your sin and took it upon himself and died on the cross and then rose again that you would have life. And then you were covered in his righteousness to be able to stand before God Almighty. And to be covered by him. And that's what we see. Jesus covers. He overcomes our accuser. After all, who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Romans 8.33 Jesus overcomes our accusers. So, Jesus, God, saves his people in Joshua in Zechariah 3. And the story of Joshua is our example. As our example, and then Tatanai is humbled to silence. Look at verse 13 of Ezra 6. Then, according to the words sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozani, and their associates did with diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, son of Edo. So Tatanai is humbled to silence. He is humbled to By what? By the working of the word of God in the background to sway a king. 
by the working of the word of God in the background of sway a king, Tatanai is humbled. So we've got Tatanai humbled, and then in the midst of opposition, God prospers his people. Look there, verse 14. The elders and Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo. Remember, Zechariah means son of time, remembers in time. So God is remembering in time here at the right time, at the right moment. They finished their building by the decree of God of Israel and by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes of Persia. And his house was finished on the third day of the month of Adder in the sixth year of the reign of Darius. Tatanai is humbled. They did what he was commanded. He's silenced by the threat of punishment and he has to do the work. And they are rescued and finished. The opposition of God does nothing to the work of God. The word of God propels the work of God and the people of God. Now, just take note that the opposition to the work of God is forced to do the very work they oppose. Tatanai opposes doing this work, and then he gets a letter back that says, not only are you going to allow this to go, but you're going to pay for it, and you're going to make sure that they get everything they, they need, and you're going to be there to make sure that they get all the stuff they need. The opposition ends up being used by God to accomplish the purposes of God, and this is not new. In the book of Esther, we're going to see the same thing when Haman tries to kill off Mordecai and all his people and then ends up having a parade for Mordecai. Haman is used by God to do the work of God. And then Pharaoh in Egypt sends the slaves away rich. The Roman soldiers in the New Testament end up fulfilling the prophecy of God on accident because they don't tear a robe. And they instead cast lots for his robe, directly fulfilling a prophecy from, oh, roughly six, seven hundred years prior. They end up fulfilling a prophecy of God. Paul has a thorn in the flesh that give, that God gives to him to keep him from being conceited in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. God uses opposition to advance his kingdom. So when somebody rises up against you or me or the gospel because of the gospel, you ought to get a little smile on your face and remember that the gospel is going to be advanced in this person's foolishness. And God is going to use what they do to his purposes. God, in the midst of opposition, prospers his people through the word of God through the prophet's voice, he prospers them. There is no opposition in your life that the word of God and Jesus Christ's work has not overcome. I want you to hear that. There is no opposition to the gospel, to salvation, to holiness, to pursuing God. There is no opposition for your work of holiness and righteousness that is not already overcome in Jesus Christ and is not already overcome through the word of God. You are more than conquerors through him who gave us victory. He is good and he is great and he has rescued and he has redeemed. Only trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Lord, we pray this morning that you would, you would make yourself known through us to this world. That we would hold fast to you. 
as you hold fast to us, that we would delight in knowing who you are and what you have done. Lord, we love you and we trust you. Amen.